Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And this is the first proper number one of our amazing deep dive into the MC2 universe. Now, we kick things off with, like most things that we're going to be looking at, a ridiculous number zero kind of one half special discussing kind of like the background that went into this universe. And I walked away really doubting why we're doing this. (laughs) But you said something that really has rung in my ears and transformed how I've taken my notes, how I've done my research. You said that for you, you're examining this as a historical document. That really has been like stuck in my ear since you said it. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what you mean by like looking at it as a piece of history? Yeah, I mean, we see alternate versions of the main Marvel Universe all the time. They generally reflect a time period as any piece of media does, but a lot of them are unique because there is this financial component of we need to produce something else in case mainline Marvel continuity is no longer viable and we have another option. So from that perspective, you're really seeing not just, you know, as any piece of art is a reflection of its time, but you're seeing a sort of distillation of the quintessence of the Marvel universe at that time, a According to a sort of corporate mandate and how you take that into something that is consumable for somebody who is no longer interested in mainline Marvel Comics continuity. And that's just especially interesting right now because of the way that we're seeing the influences from all the various parts of the comic universe come together to create the Marvel Cinematic Universe and what gets highlighted and what sort of gets completely shoved into the back of the closet so that we don't remember it anymore is fascinating. I also love the perspective it allows us to think about generational relationships in the Marvel Universe. There's something very specific that the Marvel Universe allows people to grow to a certain point and then you just gotta stop man. You have to stop. It is okay to maybe give, you know, somebody a bonus kid and I am looking right at you Fantastic Four. You know, it (laughs) sounds a little bit random but to talk about something that was kind of happening right around now though the sink is a little bit off. Valeria Richards really is a recent fucking character. She's like yep. 25 years old. And when you compare her to her brother, who's like 50, that's that's a significant age gap for these characters. And it's almost like seeing Miles, where Peter plays this pasty avuncular role to Miles in a very attractive way, where Carol plays a very familial guiding role to Kamala in so many ways. And I think that's so important because MC2 maybe didn't see that yet. They didn't know that the Marvel fans were going to kind of pump the brakes at some point on allowing these characters to age. And I think one of the big things that you see with this as a historical document is this was the last time Marvel really asked us to take an old man character seriously without them being old man somewhat. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, people age sort of log- logarithmically in that you're always approaching like past 
past middle age, but every year it, the increment to getting there is getting a little bit smaller. So, you know, to me, I feel like the Cyclops that I read is in his mid forties because of how long I have been reading him. But when writers and editors talk about Cyclops, Jordan D. White, I think thinks he's like 28, which I can understand why that has to be the case. But to me, both in terms of how much history I have for Cyclops and how he behaves in a lot of ways, to me, he's got to be in his mid forties, but he's also really getting to that point where regardless of if he's 28 or 45, which is a big gap, he's staying in the same zone and never aging past it. No matter how much life experience he gets, it is this sort of creeping towards like, yeah, someday he'll be an old man, right? Eh, But not for another 70 years worth of comic storytelling. So, you know, what MC2 did was sort of take some important characters and just pull the band-aid off and just get them to an age that this is where we're working with. We're not going to get into a bunch of back and forth about how they got there, about what happened in between. They just are the age that they are. For Spider-Man, that is old enough to have a 16-year-old daughter, so, you know, mid-40s, I would hope. Yeah. It's also how the artist draws him. The white streak in the hair really ages him beyond, I think, what the intended age is supposed to be. But it's just there so that you have this idea of like, oh, this is an adult Peter Parker. I sometimes wonder if it's one of those like editorial said he has to look different in a significant way. Yes. Because you can't confuse the lines when you look at the book. That might even have been an element. I think we are very much looking at an era of Marvel where things weren't the definite they are just after like we discussed. You know, people don't remember always how bad a bad era is. Like to be in a bad era feels really bad. And then right after it, when you look back, you go, oh my God, we were so close to the edge of the cliff. And then like with a little bit more distance, you're like, but was it really that bad? I mean, everybody made it out, right? But there is really some heavy sadness to the books that were kind of coming out at this time, even the good ones. Marvel didn't have the cohesive backbone, the you know command of industry that it would soon get. Marvel has only lost top market share, I think like eight times in the last 20 years. And this is right before that era begins. So we are really seeing them kind of try everything. And I really do think we see them in this episode alone, try literally everything. 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 We're going to be taking a look today at the first volumes of the first three series of the MC2 universe. Now that constitutes Spider-Girl Volume 1 Legacy, which contains 0 through 5. We're going to be looking at the version that was released in Digest, which is the version that matches the Marvel Unlimited website, which was released April 1st, 2004. These issues were originally published from October of 1998 through February of 1999. Now, the same time period holds true with the issues of J2 and Anex that we're going to be taking a look at, but as this is where things get a little funny and automatically, right off the bat, they're they're fucking with the numbers so bad automatically. We're going to be taking a look at J2 1 through 6 and Anex 1 through 6, which ran into March because these each cover six issues, but Spider-Girl had zero. I can't even. (laughs) And here, so, okay. J2 Volume 1, Secrets and Lies, is released and was released March 29th, 2006 with a next Volume 1, Second Coming, not far after in August. You know, these are so far out of order with where they would be with the Spider-Girl trades that were released alongside them. And the creative credits are a little wild. They're all written by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, where applicable, mostly the A-Next stories. The pencilers include Ron Friends, Pat O'Leary, 
Leaf, Ron Lim. And then we get to the Inkers, where we have Bill Sienkiewicz, Al Williamson, Al Milgram, Paul Ryan, not that Paul Ryan, Brett Breeding. And so then we're at the colorists, who are Matt Webb, Christy Scheel, Bob Sharon, Tom Smith. Yes, that Tom Smith. And then for letterers, holy shit, we have Dave Sharp, Jim Novak, Janice Chang, Jim Morelli. Okay, I got through everybody. The highest sales contained in these 18 issues is Spider-Girl, number one, at 62,805 copies, while the lowest sales represented in this read is going to be the 32,413 copies of the ever-plummeting J2. Once J2 starts falling, he just can't stop. He's unstoppable. Oh my god, fuck me. Oh my god. So, alright, now, we're gonna talk about all 18 of these issues because I did notes on them, but one of the things that I need to start with is something you said right away that really rang true with me. This was meant to be anybody can pick these fucking books up and have a gay old time of it, but they're so quickly hyper complicated to read. The one that really galled me, where I was just like, absolutely not, was the A Next J2 number three two part tie ins, which is there's a battle in A Next and they only show part of J2 versus the Hulk, which takes place in the course of it, and we see the rest of it in J2. I already had trouble trying to communicate to you some of this read order so that some of it is like this story goes in that other story that was frustrating as fuck yeah and it's you know a staple of comic books we're used to it it's something that if you're a comic book reader you're paying attention to what the crossovers are what the mentions are what the continuity stuff that lines up is if you are saying we're starting a new version of the marvel universe where continuity isn't as big a thing and you won't have to worry about the same stuff to make the choice to then publish a story across two different books without any sort of part one part two without significant notification that that's going to happen of course you're doing it because it sells books the idea that you have to pick up the other if somebody is like i only care about juggernaut juggernaut's the only character i care about i'm not buying a next or spider girl but then you have you know this important crossover story sure you have now forced that person to buy a next if they want the full story brilliant but you have shot yourself in the foot for the promise of saving people from continuity disasters and again you're not looking at it as a feature you're looking at it as a bug and trying to sort of dance around with how you can make money off it is a clear sign right off the the bat that they don't really know how to do what they claim they're doing and that this is going to be whatever it is as a project okay so i liked a lot of the ideas in spider girl but the execution was at times nightmarishly zeitgeist like it was so fucking 1998-1999 comics in an alternate universe at the big two like I, I maybe it's because this is the trope maybe this is what made the trope for its era or something but there were points at which this was certainly a victim of its era but for every victim of its era story and god fuck where there were a lot of them in J2 but there were some really cool stories and I found myself engaged in the characters as you and I both discussed probably not for the reasons they wanted us to be but if I had to say one of these was the best for me Spider-Girl Volume 1 far and away blew the other two Volume 1s out of the water there is such emotional heart in Spider-Girl I love Mayday like I legitimately think she's a great hero she's not this hero I don't think she's the daughter of Spider-Girl who put on the costume for the first time in number zero that makes no sense to me but I like Mayday Parker a lot the weak one for me is A-Next I seriously struggle to get through 
Yeah, I think that's correct with with J2 falling somewhere in between on the lower end. But yeah, on the lower end. But, you know, for you and I, for reasons that we've discussed as we prepare for this and that we will discuss, there was something, you know, it had a little leg up for us that we were able to enjoy it a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, I think May in these six issues shows the most promise, shows the ability to be a character that even though in these six, I, I wouldn't say I'm not rooting for her, but I can't say that I quite care, but they're showing me all the elements by which if good writing starts happening i will care she is she's given me buffy summers in a way that i'm like if you treat her like buffy at the best of times i could get really really into this person they don't always get there and it takes i mean it's we've got hundreds or dozens of issues of this to sort of read to sort of see how they flip-flop on that but for these six yeah a lot of promise in mayday no man (laughs) we have hundreds (laughs) yeah we have hundreds yeah. But I think without getting too far ahead of ourselves, there is a lot of queer coding in anything where a guy can size change and has a secret inner life where he is a powerful creature who can't reveal his power to other people and has to purposely hide behind stronger figures. Like there's a lot of that that is very queer. And there's a lot, like you said, about girl power in Spider Girl. And what A next has is some cool takes on some classic Marvel heroes and very minimal characterization for all of them outside of anger yeah there is a little bit of generational stuff happening but it's not particularly nuanced and thunderstrike as the child of a thor person doesn't really differentiate in any significant way from stinger as the child of an ant-man wasp giant man person like they're all just the next generation in a way that's like time has passed and the originals aren't young anymore so here are new young people they're just isn't a whole lot more to it than that which is fine it's just not compelling what's really so funny is that i had not even thought of the ways that thunderstrike is exactly stinger i'm too struck by the ways that thunderstrike is exactly j2 right and what's more amazing than all of that is tom defalco brought kevin masterson as thunderstrike to the marvel universe proper he had a five issue miniseries that looks just like mc2 where kevin gets the mace and size change changes into his dad like literally his dad and joins avengers academy and like legitimately this character has a path to existence in the marvel universe because after tom defalco stopped writing him the members of the marvel writing staff kept him going with things like avengers academy and i think he might have been in arena but i know that he has appeared on lists of thor characters and so it is really interesting that the character that we're like could work but is a little a little duplicate is the one who's kind of in the MU now. One of the things I've decided I'm going to do my best not to do unless I'm very confused about something and need to look it up for purposes of discussing it coherently is I'm not looking anybody up and seeing what happens to anybody. I made this mistake with a couple of characters that I was like, I'm clearly missing who this person is. In both cases, there's no actual reveal. They, it's just whoever, and we won't, I'm not going to tell you who it is. But <laughs> at that point, I was just like, I'm not going to look anybody up. I'm going to let all of these stories unfold how they are and if after this is all done I'm desperate to know if anything ever happened with Thunderstrike again I can go and find those issues but I'm just gonna sort of let this happen to me as it does as we read it. I want to start with Spider-Girl if that's okay with you Of course. You know, Number Zero has such an alluring cover and there's something about the fact that she's got that full body wrap around Spider that I really love. It actually makes her chest look bigger by having 
having the spider go further so it helps defeat any of the size issues that she might experience being a more slender spider figure than we're used to since the 1960s. You know, in the 70s, they started bulking him up a bit. It makes her chest look bigger in a human way. It does not make her breasts look bigger. Oh, you know, it's true. not. It's, I really appreciate that the way it looks is not like, look at this hot babe with huge gazungas who's in a Spider-Man suit. This is a female version of Spider-Man in a very straightforward, you know, the, the pose is like a little cute and coquettish, but in 1998, for what you kind of coin toss could see from any particular female character, particularly if it's a spin on a male character that is meant to sell books, this is actually a surprisingly worthy costume. Oh, for sure. And we've made the joke a few times that May is not the most feminine or the most conventionally. <laughs> yeah, they're not making a vixen here. She's not Jean Grey who just can't stop getting her long red hair in her face. Oh my God, Scott and every other guy. No. And just like randomly models. Yeah. Just oh, models. just and goes to fashion school. Mayday has this fucking hairband and she's got this up wild fucking hair. And our first great shot of May on page three of the digital edition, if you read it as Spider-Girl Zero over on Marvel Unlimited, she has these like giant feet and these hideous claw fingers and these nightmare spider eyes and she's gonna eat the basketball and she's just shattered the backboard the NBA jam <laughs> and she's putting her legs behind her head like she's folding in on space time it is not sexy thank no. you thank you guys thank you Ron friends and thank you Bill Sienkiewicz and you know what she's probably very sexy to someone yes this is does it for someone but I know what was being pandered as sexy at that time was Domino bent over trying to reach for the gun that she keeps up her cooch so yes. the fact that this is anything but that and she's meant to be 16 years old is yeah. like actually beautiful to me and it's something that I just think should be celebrated for all of the sillies we're saying yes even you know the character design I think the intention was something like T-Boz short hair overalls it just that wasn't the style anymore in 1998 so what it comes off as is a 35 to 45 year old woman who has realized <laughs> that she has same sex attraction has left her husband cut the hair off new life new me rooftop garden <laughs> Brussels sprouts, the whole bit. So it does not give me 1998 16-year-old girl, but it also does not give me 1998 comic book 16-year-old girl who is actually a 25-year-old porn star that's been traced onto a Spider-Man costume. So it's this is weird. I don't know how we came to these choices. And <laughs> no, no editor was like, maybe we missed the mark a little bit. Let's like meet in the middle on it. <laughs> But I would prefer 35-year-old lesbian to, you know, Domino pulling the gun out of her hoo-ha. Oh, a thousand percent. And I think it's interesting that this volume of What If has like 114 issues plus a zero and I think maybe even a one half. So like this volume of What If has like 116 issues and only 10 have been put on Marvel Unlimited. And this is one of them. So I'm sure it's for the significance of MC2. But, you know, we're making these comments about what thought went into this. Maybe not. 
not a whole lot and maybe on purpose because one of the things that immediately throws me off, like I know that I went to perhaps a school that was not exactly like the casual high school experience, but our quote unquote nerds were also our jocks and our jocks were also in theater and our theater kids were also in band and our band kids were also in FBLA and our kids in FBLA were also cheerleaders. I'm not saying that it was exactly like the United Nations and we were this hyper evolved people and the cast of Stargate were going to walk through the chapa eye and come talk to us to learn how our government works. But like it was certainly an experience that was far less fast times at Ridgemont High than this is. Yeah, I think that that's one of those things that we never talk about enough, which is that for most people, the standard baby boomer through old Gen X writing of the high school experience is incorrect. We it just you and I are pretty solid. We're older millennial, but we're pretty solidly millennial. It was not uncommon for people to, you know, if you were like, I'm really invested in sports and I want to succeed, you probably also did, you know, had an academic pursuit because these are all great for college applications. There's no college that is like, just come, unless you are going to be a professional athlete, you need something more than being good at high school sports. So it was very common for people to do extracurricular activities to have different disciplines in high school that they were good at. The nerds would also like the science nerds would be the basketball nerds. It's very, very common experience, but a lot of the writing that we got for our media still had things separated into these jock, brain, nerd categories that just, I think we're not super familiar to a lot of us. So again, I'll give this credit for being a little closer to that. I very agree. And it is even built into our fiction. You know, we talk about how in order to be successful, you need to be able to do it all. So we've always had that the most successful people could do it all built into a lot of our fictional narratives. So sometimes when things get so reductive, it's often in order to help express the idea on page in simpler terms. The truth is, if Peter Parker, at the end of high school, pulled off his shirt in gym class and fucking wailed on everybody, everybody would have been like, what the fuck? fuck just happened. Peter Parker is jacked and the strongest kid on earth. But you can't keep selling us that he's a nerd who can't make it work with the girls despite his amazing spider body if you don't keep selling us that he is essentially the world's weirdest, most awkward kid. And as someone who frequently remembers being that kid in high school who like was that awkward, I know a lot of it is self-created, right? But man, this is really hammering home. You can be cool or you can have non-physical interests and those are the only two settings in all of high school and like even Batman Beyond did it with a little bit more nuance like just saying yeah part of it is so that May can be our bridging character that can take us through any corner of high school plausibly and in that way she sort of represents a more familiar ideal which is why I say like on the spectrum of how high school is depicted following her you get a little bit more of like a this is a well-rounded person that does sports that is also a superhero that seems to be doing comparatively well academically but 
her doing so is sort of to offset the fact that her nerd friends are getting beat up by her jock friends and never the twain shall meet unless there is a supervillain attacking the school. And I think that's in part because as I read Spider-Girl Zero, it became increasingly obvious to me that Spider-Girl was not a May Parker vehicle. It was a Peter Parker vehicle in, you know, Spider-Man's daughter, What If. It's a very different story than Spider-Girl, the series. And this whole Normie, the kids of the heroes thing. Normie is the most cringe fucking thing. Oh my God. I mean, he is like the most cringe thing I can think of. It's like somebody took the scene from American History X with the curb stomping and said, how can I synthesize that? But really inauthentically. (laughs) It is a bit of a disaster in terms of creating a compelling villain. That is really the second biggest flaw of this issue for me. The biggest flaw of this issue for me is May being like, I guess I am super powerful. I just never thought about it. But you know what? Yeah, I'm a superhero. Again, like, I don't understand where editorial was on this. It is established repeatedly that she's getting these. She's not a mutant. These powers didn't turn on one day. She's getting these powers from her father. The idea that there is no ramp up and that they turned on at a basketball game. But then, like, sometimes there's, like, little mentions to maybe, like, there was something. There was just no clear idea of if it is literally a turn on moment, it has to be a much bigger thing that has to be her year zero her day zero the day that they literally turned on that we like flash back to eight different times what was happening on that day I remember that day like it was my whole life or you have other things like I kept almost falling down the stairs and for some reason I would always write myself like there has to be some understanding of I never got sick I right exactly and what did that mean and why was my father not saying anything to me about it why did they never check on this stuff like why were they not concerned that's a sign Anyway, there was no sort of demand on the writer that he have an understanding of how this worked and how it was going to play into the mythology of Spider-Girl. This was supposed to be one of those things where it was like, don't worry about continuity. Like, she just has her powers. But the problem is that the story worries about continuity a lot, just not in the ways that it needs to to justify itself. Because one of the most glaring issues with continuity, and it's, it's no one's fault, like, I'm a really big fan of if you never said, then you never said. And if you don't tell me something, you kind of have permission to change it. If you've never said a character is an only child and you suddenly mention nine siblings, that pushes my believability. If you suddenly mention two, okay, sure. And continuity should evolve. But you sometimes wind up with page 14 of the What If Digital as Spider-Girl Zero, where you've got J2 in his father's armor standing next to Speedball standing next to Thunderstrike, Jubilee seemingly at the helm of the Avengers and they work really hard to make this scene make any sense. I don't think they work that hard. Well, they're like, oh, sometimes she hangs with the Avengers that one time for two seconds. Her time with the Avengers was a blur. And then a a random second time to do testing. I forgive it because they were developing a universe. What I have perhaps a little bit more trouble with is the fact that Spider-Girl feels the need to think to herself that she's feeling loose and slamming heat because it sounds to me like she just had an enema and she's about to do some hard drugs. And I'm really, really 
really uncomfortable. It's like later on, one of the bad guys launches a gaseous projectile and says that he's about to introduce a party popper to the situation. And I'm like, different meaning, different meaning. (laughs) Well, or just like way, way, way too many ball double entendres that were not intended to be double entendres with Crazy 8, one of the unfortunately better designed villains of these three. (laughs) But his whole thing is he's just an athletic dude with a bunch of eight balls that are like Hawkeye's arrows. They're trick balls. But it's just like, it's 1998. You can't say balls eight different times. Balls, 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 balls. Yeah. He is Jenna Maroneying all over this place. I just, again, why was nobody like, this guy's really cool. He'll totally do for one of our early villains. Maybe we call them just projectiles and we don't use the word balls eight different times and like have him make snarky ball references. Maybe we don't. Because we're still seeing that with gold balls becoming egg. Right. Right. You can do it for a minute and it's funny. And like, if you want us to take a character seriously and for them to have long term viability. And in this case, they have to be threatening. So there's an extra wrinkle of like gold balls doesn't have to be threatening. And like, anyway, crazy eight can't keep just talking about balls all the time. Like he has to. We gotta fix this. But there's <laughs> there's nobody at the helm when it comes to editorial. It's just, oh, DeFalco, you turn the script in, stamp approved. It's going right into print. You know, and that is something that I didn't notice until I was putting together all of the credits so that I would be able to credit every amazing creator who put in the time to make this phenomenal bit of storytelling. And I mean that unironically, it really is something that we're still talking about literally 25 years later. So they had to do something, right? There's no credited editor which I ultimately found out means that Tom DeFalco edited the title and the line until issue 19. And it is very interesting because once we move into the first proper issue, it kind of already goes a little bit off the wall with her background. Her bedroom has a WNBA poster, a Cranberries reunion tour poster, which that's ultimately a very sad impossibility. And then if you look behind her, her eyeball in that giant panel that she's kind of ass first somersaulting over. I think that's a Daredevil cover. Like that literally looks like the Daredevil Vill logo stylized behind it. Oh, yes. So, you know, I already think there's some fascinating stuff going on with the meta statement they're trying to make. But I also think that one of the things that they had to spend a couple of pages doing at the start of the first issue was making up for the fact that that last couple of pages of What If Number Zero, after the defeat of Normie, where she's just like, no, I know I am Spider Girl. The issue just kind of stops. There's a couple of hubba hubbas. You're in your zone. It just works out. Yeah, that feels really packed in to just make us get to the end point but issue zero just ends completely yeah i mean and we don't know if defalco said let me do this what if it'll be a test balloon and as long as it doesn't completely tank let me do a full series and two more we don't know what the process was by which this all came together so this does have a very what if story vibe in so far as a lot of them once they have put out their initial question and answered it don't necessarily have a need wrap up for the answer of the question what if spider-man had a daughter well she would probably be spider girl would she be any good at it question mark when you answer these questions you have to really put a period on the end of the sentence of the answer and a lot of what ifs don't do that they give you that initial like here's the answer 
But what that means and why we should care is sometimes very difficult for a what if story to get in there in the time allotted and sort of end the issue cleanly. This is a bit that case. I agree. And I think that's why the Fantastic Five are unavailable is just a drop in and we see <laughs> just a random Avengers, you know, like they just want to tease us. They just want to get us interested in case this did work out. We get more because, you know, once we transition out of that zero and into issue one and we get pretty much a this is exactly the high school situation. Like, I mean, it's every time we see the inferior Yama versus who's obviously going to be his husband. I mean, like, obviously they're going to get together because that's that's this 90s trope of bully comes out and winds up with his his victim. You know, not that I know that that's going to happen and not that I'm rooting for it. Like, but like that is so this sort of Baljeet and Buford from Phineas and Ferb sort of trajectory that these characters are on. <laughs> but- well, it's just such a weird, they hammer it in time and time again to the point where it is disruptive to the storytelling. There's no yes. moral to it. A moment will come up where they almost have sort of a bonding thing around a villain, but that moment of bonding doesn't take a next step that leads anywhere. Again, I have not read ahead. I don't know what happens. So maybe as we get past issue 12, something will happen with these two. But the way it is hammered in in these first six issues, it does start to read a sexual tension because it is so nonsensical and nonstop that it reads like these two are so horny for each other, but completely unable to deal with it because they're 16 and, you know, you can't quite be out of the closet yet. So I've, I've been that kid. I was that kid. And I recognize this behavior. Because it really is so over the fucking top it is every fucking page is somehow you know moose versus jimmy moose versus jimmy to the point where brad doesn't exist and brad is meant to be her love interest brad is meant to be the guy that you know we want to see her wind up with he's handsome he's blonde there's no room for him no because it is entirely this conflict between these two boys who like everybody around them you know may is ostensibly friends with both of them and could and also it has super strength like could be doing a lot more to referee the situation but brad as well like the two of them there's even a potential story in like hey our friend groups are having trouble and we want to bone let's work on a project that is fixing this weird situation that won't stop that has gone completely off the rails and it'll allow us to spend time together and you know we can give each other our flowers thousand percent because it really does start to get like so far into it this is an independent european gay film right yes they're going to beat each other up in a back alley and while in the hospital they're going to hold hands suggestively yes then they're going to just take a train somewhere and the movie's going to end with the train going around a mountain and that's the end of the film that's it and it's formative for a generation of children that didn't have gay cinema in their own country and inexplicably the entire score is nothing but rondo the entire time so (laughs) i I think that, you know, I also found the lack of adult characters. Like The more I thought about it, yeah, they gave May a ton of characters in Zero, even though it wasn't about her, because they needed to give her something. Peter didn't have anybody except Mary Jane, and Mary Jane really didn't have a personality in Zero. She gets one throughout Volume 1, and by Volume 2, I love this MJ, but it isn't until Phil is introduced, Uncle Phil, you know, a slightly different take on a 90s Uncle Phil, but I've 
okay, he ultimately does not do a whole lot for me. I think he could have because when Uncle Phil Urich is introduced in issue one, I'm obsessed with Ben Urich. Like this is like built into the core of who I am. I think that, you know, if you're talking about the father, son, and the Holy Spirit of Hell's Kitchen, you know, Kingpin is the father, Daredevil is the son, and Ben Urich is the Holy Spirit because he's the voice of the city that won't let a good man go down. And like Ben Urich's story is by far one of the most powerful things about the entirety of the Daredevil or Spider-Man narrative. Think about what ultimately fucking Norman did to my poor Ben. So like using Urich as a name already gets you on my good side. I'm already manipulated. You have what you want from me. Then you make him a well-intentioned sort of Neil Patrick Harris back when Neil Patrick Harris could be believably well-intentioned kind of guy. And I'm in. I think he's one of the more compelling things about the early Spider-Girl stories. So you and me differ a little bit in that. I'm new to the Hell's Kitchen side of Marvel through you. And so Ben Yurik is a character and the Yurik name set off alerts for me of like, oh, this is another little tie to the continuity they claim that they have no interest in. Not necessarily a bad one. Okay, I'm here for it. Who is he? He was the Green Goblin. Believe me. Yeah, now of course I know he's the Green Goblin because of the insane things that happen in this book. But with such an iconic name, I was, as soon as I saw it, I I got confused because I was like, surely he would be the young plucky uh, journalist who is going to start following May when he realizes there's a new spider girl in town. Like, surely it's going to be something like that because Ben Yurik is such an important name when it comes to the journalism side of Marvel, which is a small little slice of the universe, but one that, you know, is important when it's used properly. I thought that's where we were going with this. So, you know, the fact that he's Peter's assistant, I can see where you're coming from and he is a good character. Once it all settled and I realized that this was who he was going to be, I just sort of thought, again, you told us you weren't doing continuity and then you gave us this piece of continuity and then you didn't even use it spectacularly. Okay. I almost wonder if between the Phil Eric, the slight daredevil slice on the wall and the fact that she's basically in the Man Without Fear costume for this issue because she doesn't have her Spider-Girl duds, I wonder if it was all meant to be like a loving tribute to Daredevil knowing that Dark Devil winds up being such a big player in this. I love Dark Devil. He is so stupid. So I am like super stupid. I like super stupid. But like the stupid, like I kind of like stupid. Not like how many times they say English lit. That's too stupid. Yes. Uh, Captain Ruiz is fine. Yeah. She's there. Yeah. You're always going to have a police higher up, especially like with Peter working for the police. Like, of course, there's going to be somebody like that who never really understands what's going on. And Peter's always trying to do double duty to make sure she never discovers May and May's keeping her kids from getting kidnapped or whatever the fuck happens. There's always that character. It takes a lot. I feel like DC does good things with those characters a lot of time. Marvel doesn't have the same grasp of (laughs) plucky police chief. Definitely agree. Marvel always goes a little bit more a cab with it yeah like real way harder and i wonder if part of that is like the balance of bad guys you know you mentioned him a little while ago but between crazy eight in issue number two and mr nobody like the most forgettable bad guy in the world like how is that your number one bad guy i mean and crazy eight kind of looks like broccoli so he's strangely not much better and dark devil like the fact that dark devil has fangs is the hardest part for me it is like literally that he's got little spider teeth like like it's too much yeah i kept looking being like is he a living statue is this a woman 
why are there fangs? Like, there, I have so many questions, and I'm excited because I know that we'll be getting some answers. That woman thing was not an insult, by the way, to anybody listening. I would have been totally cool if Dark Devil was a woman. It's just a weird, like, the costume is somewhat feminine in a campy way, and then with the dialogue and just the silliness of the... It's just unclear what we're getting from this character. I have it's been so secretly unclear. observing you in action, little girl, and I find you lacking. But to me, like, when I started reading it, I was reading it in, like, a silly, like, oh, I've been, like, <laughs> <laughs> I've been secretly observing you in action, little girl. <laughs> Very him um, from the Powerpuff Girls. Exactly. So I'm excited about this character. It, again, just didn't feel like there was anybody saying, okay, who is this? It's not really clear to me. Let's pull some things together so that whatever you're referencing or whatever you're trying to say about him is a little more clear. Because I think that this issue, more than the first two, is buying time. And it's so weird to talk about how Spider-Girl is collected. Because Spider-Girl was collected in a sort of must-have edition. Marvel must-haves were kind of like a mega-sized reprint of a couple of issues in a row. And it was 0, 1, and 2. And then the first trade, which came out shortly after the series started, was 0 through 8. And then there was nothing until 2004 when they collected 0 through 5. So, you know, Spider-Girl is collected really strangely. And I think that perhaps 0 slash 1 were a bigger hit than they expected. And they thought they had a little bit more time. But I really think like issue 2 breaks down into like pages 2 through 9, where it's all of the setup. 10 through 16, where basically the whole thing comes down to that Obnoxio the Clown reference. You know, that was a Marvel throwaway issue in the 1980s, the X-Men versus Obnoxio the Clown. And so like it's actually a reference to a real comic book. So that's like a really nice touch there. But once again, the center star here is Moose and Jimmy, which is not compelling in the least. No, I mean, it, it could be. Yeah, somebody We can get it compelling. Wrote, right. If somebody wrote that today, you could make, you could make it like the, the most ridiculous, cool, fun, gay coming of age story. It's just so obviously not intended to be that. There's even little things that I don't know if are meant to be as, I don't know, I feel kind of weird about it, but like May's girl power shirt in a lot of ways doesn't work for me. It's the women's symbol sign and the word power below it. And it just feels kind of like this was their idea of making her a feminist, not actually show her do anything feminist, not have her have feminist causes, not have her have feminist concerns and a desire to see women furthered into equality, but rather that's a way we can show that we have a very modern thinking young woman on our hands. And shorthands like that are very dangerous when you're trying to create a character who's meant to be representative of something very big. Especially because she does butt heads with her father about being a super-powered superhero spider person, but the writing just misses the on-ramp to have that discussion be partially about her being a young woman with power who is ready to do something with it. She is a person, she is a the child of a superhero, and so that superhero is concerned about his child, but there is a moment where he could sort of be saying it was fine when I did it I'm me and her to sort of call him out and say like is it because you're a man 
again because I can do all the same things that you did. Recognize that whatever your like biases are around me doing the same activity, they're your biases. They don't have anything to do with whether or not it's appropriate for me to be doing this. It just doesn't ever get there. It's just this fight between parent and child where the parent really has no good reasons for this mandate. And yeah, we're kind of left with a shirt being the thing that talks to us about feminism. And that is a huge problem with this entire run. And I guess this is a good point to kind of hit my first if we're doing an MC2 drinking game and we want to like point to found a crack in the foundation. One of the biggest problems is they were trying to operate under a dual modality in an era that was looking for something very homogenized. We were moving toward serialized storytelling where the narratives were beginning to take five, six issues and even then the connective threads ran much longer. So even if you presented it as a two-part story, it was actually parts three and four of seven that just happened to be the two parts that were only about Rogue and Joseph. But Rogue and Joseph are going to meet back up with Storm and Gambit and Beast in part six, and then that's part seven too. They were trying to say, oh, we're not like that. We're not so serialized that it's impossible to read without having read the last five or six. But you wanted all of the modern conveniences. You wanted all of the benefits of that sort of deep dive into character retrospective and personality that comes along with those sorts of decompressed stories. But then you weren't giving us the fodder. You weren't providing us that level of characterization. Instead, we get Jimmy and Moose just trying to fuck in the hallway. Well, and also, you want everybody to buy every issue. Like, this is, you've released three series. They're weirdly interconnected. You very clearly are saying, buy all three of these. Trust us, just do it. This is a new universe. Buy all three. You'll get into it but also you don't need to buy all three because it's not necessary and but you don't do even need to buy them month to month right you don't need to buy them month to month but do but there's no benefit to doing so but you should do it anyway which is why when we roll into the third issue and by this point she's just sort of defeated mr nobody and crazy eight and norman all the same way just kicks them that's it she just kind of kicks them and she gets that famous spider flying across the page look and then the story's over i appreciate the fun and games with Fantastic Five joke because fun and games was the name of another classic Marvel magazine that featured word searches and word jumbles and coloring pages. Anytime Marvel does a coloring version, I'm always like, you mean like, you can just throw away your money? <laughs> right? That's that's what those are, right? So I loved that. You know, all of the titles that month had matching things like that, like fun and games or down and dirty, that kind of thing. I hate the Fantastic Five. Yeah. I fucking, re- I mean like Fantastic Four is take them or leave them for me in the first place you should check out our coverage on html where we thought the best fantastic four movie by far is the roger corman movie because it is the best doom ever is that doom is hysterical in all of the ways you want your doom to be funny he's amazing i think that that's my favorite version of the fantastic four is indicative of a very shaky relation oh no i love the thing cartoon where the thing has like kid sidekicks and also then 15 minutes are just dedicated to schmoo but you should definitely check that out i don't care for the fantastic four and i don't care for the fantastic five no i mean i don't it's i don't know where to begin franklin is 
a neutered, angry... Oh, no, he's a sex symbol, don't you know? Oh, God, and then there's that part of it, too. Like, the complete lack of understanding about Franklin's powers. And I'm not... I just don't understand how we got here, is what I mean when I say that. I don't understand, because we're just coming off of Onslaught, where Franklin is capable of doing literally anything. Yeah. Yeah, he's God. And now he's like, oh, side blast? I don't know. His father's some horrifying abomination in a fucking... He's a brain in a vat, which is never discussed and he's never like i'm so sad that i can't hug my child i'm with you no i'm really with you there is such a divorce from like and it's so crazy because jumping ahead slightly the month fantastic five number one comes out it's one of like six fantastic four comics that come out that like they really were a property when Mm -hmm. this was going on and it just i don't get it johnny as a leader is the least plausible thing that has ever happened in the history of any marvel universe johnny is never the leader of anything for any reason every single other person has to have died for Johnny to be the person that you call to lead any kind of team. Johnny wouldn't even be the person I would put in charge of Johnny. Yes. So it's spectacular to me that we're meant to buy that. I understand what part of this is. It's like the, oh, think about the contrast. Earn my contrast. Right. Earn it. This is the Fantastic Four are the first family of the Marvel Universe. I don't know that that is often an earned title, but when it is, it's great. And the idea of a family of superheroes we've seen in other stories like The Incredibles is a really compelling thing. This was a blank slate. The idea that they would use different characters since they're doing that anyway makes a ton of sense choose the right ones and give us great roles for them such that we say this is a new kind of first family but i can see why as a 90s spin on the idea of the nuclear family from the 60s this is fascinating and interesting and i get why everybody loves these people i can't say any of that about this no i can't and it doesn't help that this issue goes out of its way to be purposefully unclear at times So you've read ahead in Spider-Girl. So without discussing it too much, this villain is ultimately the linchpin of how Spider-Girl continues to exist. This character and the story he leads to is the pivotal moment that they use over and over again to tie things between the MC2 and M universe. So this character who's not even named here, Spiral. He is named very briefly. Oh, okay. Because I definitely- Our our old pal Spiral, they say. But there's no how he's their old pal and there's no- nothing you do get the name but you don't get any sort of indication of why this person is important or what he means to them you're absolutely right it's on digital page 10 you're absolutely right it's clear that he means something it's clear that this is a relevant but it's like there are two pages or even two panels of missing exposition that all they just need to give us something to say this is actually a really important person rather than having him be like i bet you didn't know i'm really important because as of right now he's just a well endowed jk simmons in a gimp suit and i don't know what to do with that beyond the fact that that's a lot of things that i would put on a list to have someone draw into a comic i think from them just kind of running away from him and look the blue whale literally looks like an ice nun in a condom and (laughs) it is like the worst look i have ever seen bar none he is embarrassing when a friend comes up to you and goes well look good in this and you have that thing where you can be like honest or you can be gentle this is one of those things where the person would be so embarrassed if you let them go out like that that you would fall on the grenade and you would literally let them hate you for a little while to just be like no you look stupid don't ever for any reason go out like that ever you should be embarrassed and i won't let you do this to your legacy is this a pre mc2 
you canon thing? I have to be honest. I don't know if the blue whale is real. Just for listeners, Phil Yurick is talking about other identities that he has had besides Green Goblin. And one of them is the blue whale. Whale like a, a whale in a screaming. <laughs> He's not an aquatic creature. It's just the stupidest, most horrendous costume. I don't know. He looks like to... a blue and white traffic cone. He does look like a blue and white traffic cone. He looks like yeah. Mr. Freeze's cousin, Mr. Slushy. <laughs> Mr. Freeze, that's exactly, yes, yep. And again, this issue just ends. Like, it just stops. They just kind of beat Spiral. And there's all of this stuff about May flirting with Franklin, which is only weird if you think about the fact that Franklin is like eight in the Marvel Universe at the time this universe launches, and the baby that would have been May would be like eight months old at this point. So it's just a little weird that like we're meant to just immediately buy them as flirting comfortably. That That's a tough sell for me. I mean, that's one of the other problems with MC2 is the idea of the timing is very obviously clear to Tom DeFalco and somebody with a broad knowledge of a lot of spheres of the Marvel Universe. The best way to think about it is Marvel Universe started when it started and every story up until this starts has been in approximately 18 years. So the 1998 that we are in in this book, everything that happened in Spider-Man continuity and a ton of stuff that we we didn't know about all happened prior to 1998. So before 1998, he has to have been Spider-Man, you know, fought the Green Goblin a number of times, met Mary Jane, had a child, and then 16 years have to have passed. So it is 1998. It's not the future in these, but you know, it, it wasn't 1998, 16 years ago, and it's now, you know, 2014. It's 1998, and everything in these stories and that we know is like broadly Marvel Universe history happened before them, which is just an odd decision to make about how the continuity is going to work. And it's very confusing, especially because with all superhero stories, there's a lot of like futuristic technology that shouldn't exist in the time period that it's in. So it's sometimes tough to tell if this is the future. I'll say this much. I really thought I was time traveling back to the 1960s when I was forced to read Spider-Girl number four. (laughs) I genuinely thought up through the beginning of this issue i number one just kind of thought that they were vaguely like pretending to just kind of not notice that she was spider girl like i thought they were just kind of like i don't notice it it's not happening and it turns out they're like actively against it and then we get to the most like classist thing i'm just so fucking horrified like genuinely this janitor at this school who no one bothers to know the name of to the point where when somebody knows the janitor's name somebody goes oh you know his name first of all his name is janitor Hackmutter, and he hates these kids so much that he's been hoarding things and one of them turns him into a giant dragon king it feels a little unfortunate that it has kind of like an asian stylizing on a guy stealing an amulet and using it for evil and it's classist and this story is the first like fucking f this is the first like actual zero stars I'm giving. There's a couple of stories like the next issue I think is the best issue of all 18 stories we're talking about today, but this gets an F. So we have to discuss that the thing that sets this janitor off, who has hated these kids for a very long time and has just sort of seethed quietly, the thing that pushes him over the edge is getting caught in the wild storm love affair between <laughs> me. 
<laughs> between Moose and Jimmy, who are at it again. Their love that cannot be contained within the panels of this book spills out in such a way that they injure this janitor and neither of them has the sense to just apologize. Yeah. To just give any indication that this is a human being that they have in some way inconvenienced. Jimmy's a little bit better about it, but really he's so obsessed with Moose that he fails to sort of properly acknowledge the humanity of this person who this is the straw that broke the camel's back. He goes goes into his hoard that he has at the school where maybe he lived in um, in like a closet of no <laughs> and just are creatures that are like um, offshoots of the school that live inside of it so he goes there to the hoard of things that he has and one of them is accidentally a magical amulet that turns him into yes a weirdly orientalist dragon king person that now just wants to murder all of the students and i think the thing that me the most is that he doesn't specifically just go for moose and jimmy yeah it's he's like a hate monger and you know i also side note my personal venom is flash thompson like and he's not everyone's favorite venom or anything but he's my venom and so i kind of love over the hill gym teacher definitely has a secret grinder account coach thompson and you know likes to talk about when he was a wrestler to the young strapping lads that he meets up with <clears throat> nothing gay or anything don't look me in the eyes <laughs> Yikes. And I just hate this issue. I feel really bad about it because, you know, I try to find something really positive to say. The ending makes me not remember how much I hate the beginning, maybe, because the ending is a different kind of annoying. But I genuinely thought this issue was offensive and I would like nothing more than to not have to read it again. That said, a touch of venom is, you know, I make this joke that if you're going to do like 12 issues of something and you don't hit the big things that everyone expects you to do, they're going to demand them in the sequel. So if you're doing like a Spider-Man story and you don't hit Venom in the first thing, that obviously Venom has to go in year two. I thought the balls on doing Venom issue six, technically issue five, was awesome. I thought this was brave. I thought this was clever. And fuck, it, the fact that the first Spider-Host is Spider-Venom and it's Peter is so intense. It's frightening. It's really a way to force us to deal with that Peter is still a threat in a lot of ways and I really like that because one thing that they did not do was they did not let the fact that Peter has had his leg amputated in any way make him less of a man. He might not be a superhero because he no longer feels that sort of drive in his person but they don't in any way hinder him. He's not nerfed in any way so making him spider venom bangs for me right away. Yeah I think without this to have you know put an over the hill Eddie Brock in the costume or something like that would have just been acceptable and it would have been like crazy eight you can see all the reasons why it had to be but it's not especially compelling you don't really care there might be a couple jokes out of it there's some nostalgia factor if it's eddie brock but we don't care if it's spider-man it becomes an entire generational trauma question about the future there's for me this real question that doesn't really get addressed and this is one of those cases where i'm not going to be like you should have written this because i kind of like 
being in my head about it a little more, but how involved was Peter and Peter's mindset and Peter's frustration about May being Spider-Girl and his frustration at no longer being Spider-Man? How much of that played into Spider-Venom's actions and what sort of became of the symbiote? I love that question because, you know, number one, the fact that Spider-Venom is so big and powerful, like he is visually larger than Peter in a way that kind of befits what I think of when I think of Peter's body. Like this is Spider-Man size to me. The arms are a little exaggerated and the shoulder line and the traps are a little nuts. But like this is vaguely Spider-Man size under Todd McFarlane. This is vaguely Spider-Man size when JRJR is drawing him in the big pinups. So this gives me that sense of things. And to think that this is Peter really showing through in some capacity really does back that up. And I thought the actual star of this issue was MJ. Her being like, no, you are Spider-Girl. Go do it. Like that was such a moment for me because this is MJ's daughter too. This is MJ's husband as well. MJ might not have that symbol on her chest, but she absolutely fights in this battle every day as a spider person. And if we're going to talk about the true girl power moments of this book, they really are often between MJ and May. And MJ very clearly doesn't have the same problem with this that Peter does. She has concerns. She is not necessarily just saying, go out and do what you want. But I think if May, when May comes to her and really says, this is what I want, MJ is the one who says, I'm listening. Let's talk about it. And that is an important message that these two women, mother and daughter, can come to each other and share concerns and share needs and share fears, I think is a an important part of this story. Because that's probably the thing that made Spider-Girl my favorite. The idea that these characters have an emotional bond. And it's something that made the Spider-Venom issue so good that I don't think any other of these titles could have handled. I don't yeah. think J2 had a this in it. I don't think A-Next had this in it. And, you know, definitely my number one pick of this round of issues and it maybe ends a little conveniently, you know, it makes sense. I don't love, oh God, you killed Uncle Phil. Oh, he's fine. NBD. Like that's a little stupid. But other than that, you know, this really had what I was looking for from an issue. The fact that Blue Whale could take out Venom is a little ridiculous, but I'm I'm in. Yeah. And it's the sound thing. I mean, I, I did appreciate there was some internal logic to what it was. Visually, it looked a little silly, but, you know, Venom having sonic weakness and Phil having access to sonic power made sense. Again, it's continuity. It, it you In order to get the full effect of that, you have to understand these two things that you do not understand unless you have read comics, but that's okay. That's great. You've been embracing it by this point. We might be in a very different place. So all said and done, how do you feel about the first volume of Spider-Girl? You know, I'm not giving it like a crazy score. I think I'd have to give it like a, a B, B minus if I'm being realistic, B plus if I'm being promising about hope. Yeah, I think I'm going to say B minus for execution, B plus for aspiration. Yeah, yeah. because I can't be quite as positive on J2 and I'm positive on J2 but I think the most positive I can be on J2 is like a C and the reason is because J2 for the most part is three short stories per issue it's usually an anchor A story that runs about 10 pages some sort of two page waste of my time and then usually some sort of C plot kind of backup story and I you know I talked about it a little bit but you know the whole thing is that 
that Zane Yama is Juggernaut's son and recognizes for the first time on page seven and eight of his first issue that he can size change into his father. And, you know, just like size changing and body transformation are a huge part of queer fiction and queer culture. So this was very definitive for me as a young nerdy guy with messy hair and glasses. He also looks very much like Tim Hunter, who is a character that I very much loved at this point in my life. His introduction story is almost frustrating, though, because it's so by the numbers. So we got to say he size changes and goes to the other end of puberty. He is. Yeah. Right now, he is a 14, 15 year old boy. He becomes a man. He becomes a man. He's he's hairy. He's big. Like he fully goes to the other side of puberty. The other thing I think it's important that just people be aware is happening in the background and is another odd miss. We have Zane Yama. We have Jimmy Yama. There is the Yama name for some reason features prominently in these three stories. Again, it's some connective tissue that tells you this is its own contained universe in which the Yamas are a very important people, but nothing happens with that message. Zane and Jimmy, Jimmy from Spider-Girl, are essentially cousins. And they share one scene I can think of. Do they even go to the same school? I, I can't imagine they do. Right. Which makes sense. New York is big. They, sh- yeah. they don't necessarily have to go to the same school, but it's not clear. The fact that there's only three books and there is a mention of the Yamas in all three of them in very big roles. It's weird to put that much effort into it and then not have a core plan for why that would even be the case. Zane has the exact same story as his cousin. He has an oversized bully who he constantly butts heads with. And it's so absurd because he actually has Flash Thompson syndrome. He's obsessed with J2. So Miller, not to be confused with Brad Miller from Spider-Girl, ridiculous because it's his last name. This is Miller Hallandale. Like, it's so fascinating because I thought to myself, Miller is an HGH nightmare come to life. And the reason he has to be so big is so that when J2 is even bigger, it creates visual context. But there is something very, I'm not saying these creators in particular working out their coming of age moments through J2, but J2 is suddenly the biggest man in the world and he is suddenly aware of it in a bathroom after a confrontation with a guy who is normally much larger than him and then suddenly can't help but run naked and thinks it's very cool how he is aware that he inherited from his father that he is enormous. And this is clearly some people working out some stuff. It plays out with perhaps an innocence when he is Zane that when he is J2 and an oversized roid monster with clear stubble does not translate quite as cleanly. So there is some moments later on where the play against the size change doesn't really work. But for the most part, outside of kind of needlessly having a young man be naked a couple of times, it stays on the innocent side of body transformation coming of age. Yeah, I think that's true. There is an exuberance and a fascination. And if you want to be very generous with the reading or you are sort of queer and experience this, there's a like, what potential do I have? What could I become if I just kind of let nature take its course? I mean, in this case, it's like let magic take its course. But like, what is there for me that I aspire to and that would make my life so different? Because that is all this story is. Unfortunately, the first 14 pages of this comic in Call the Kid J2 and Decisions Decisions, he discovers his power, he busts through his school, he runs naked, he goes home, he designs essentially his dad's costume with a little bit more black lycra and a t-shirt around his waist. And this isn't a comic book, this is a beat sheet. 
so that when we get to Rocked by Roller Blast, it is hard to care. Miller, Hallandale immediately getting to be like, oh, J2 is the coolest and I'm I'm his biggest fan is such an over-the-head womp. It's like they took their time by doing the same thing over and over again with Spider-Girl, so they thought they could just bang out every kind of story with J2 in the first issue, and it, down to the last page, shock reveal, it really feels like you're forcing me to run along, and it's it's tough. You're running along, but for what purpose? There's nothing here that you're like, I gotta know more. Yeah, I don't find myself eager to discover what's going on with J2 anywhere else, so like, I am now aware, reading this and doing my notes on it as an adult, that a lot of my attraction to this was, you know, the queer coding that we've talked about, and I find the covers of J2 actually really frustrating. It's much more in the second half, but that the second cover says it had to happen, it's issue two. It's issue seven of the entire fucking line. You can't say it had to happen already. Shut your mouth. And I think part of that is the humor of using tropism on the cover, but, you know, once again, we have a parent that's like, don't be a superhero, and we open up on another bad guy that's just kind of somebody in black lycra, and once again, there's like a bullying situation. But this issue had the tie-in to A next. And again, if you're not reading A next, what the fuck is Jarvis doing here? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think there's even much to talk about with Rollerball or whatever his name is. You know, he has a buffer zone. He's like a personal force field guy. No, isn't his name Buffer Zone? Oh, okay. Sure. It's that generic. I yep. think Miller saving J2 is interesting because it sets up some stuff later on where J2 is like, I'm stuck with this guy, then I'm going to use him to my advantage, which is one of the things I like the most about Zane. The fact that he has the same setup as his cousin is redeemed only by the fact that he goes in a very different direction with it and it doesn't get so comically homoerotic because it just won't ever stop. It does other things and Zane has a much cooler head and is much less like dealing with such internal strife that it just makes the whole thing weird and sad. So he just has this guy who's like, I know he's a dick, but I also know that I like can turn into a giant and when I'm a giant, this guy loves me. So like, it's all relative. Life is weird. Like people, everybody's human, which is funny and great and fine. Never really leads to great storytelling, but we don't thankfully have that same thing as with Jimmy and Moose where it's just like, this is still happening and they haven't kissed yet. Because I really think we can say that Miller's super hardcore simps for J2. Like, yeah, he legitimately walks around like everybody is inferior to me as a man. But as soon as J2 walks in the room, he's like, that guy's bigger than me. I'm in love. And like, he creams his pants for this guy. Zane isn't in love with Miller. You know, Zane loves this idea that he's J2 and he he can be huge. When he's a little person, he does not covet Miller. At all. At all. No, his boyfriend is Thunderstrike. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah, this is just some dude in his high school that he's like, whatever. And so the fact that when he's J2, Miller is in love with him is, again, it's funny and it gives Zane this perspective that I think you and I are being very generous in our reading because this is not in the text, but it is a great reading of he's just like, again, we're all human. Like I now see that this person is as flawed as I am and has a person that he looks up to and it just so happens that it's accidentally me. Because, you know, when I was, before I was super into fitness and before, you know, posting on my Instagram and Twitter, Half Naked was my favorite hobby. I would think to myself, once I'm jacked, everything will be easier. Yes. My whole life will make sense. Yep. I will be happy and I will love myself. And I spent years getting there and realized nah, I'm actually more about the journey. Yeah. Like I'm more about the process. Being jacked isn't going to make my life easy. Half
having the conviction and the willpower to do something as dramatic as transform your body is going to make your life better. But once J2 gets that in an instant, he's forced to confront the fact that enormous, he still can't get Talia. He still can't save the day. He's... And now he has all these new problems that are horrible. Yeah. he's Now he's got to help save the world or, you know, he's still a kid. We'll get to it. But there's this just amazing moment in an issue where they fight the Defenders where he just panics. And it is probably to me the most insightful moment in all three. Truly, truly. And then I think it's probably really exciting for us now to talk about something that I'm half yeah. convinced I'm going to move this over to, to Exus for Podcast. This little bit of coverage. Oh my God. I hate the X people so much that I love them. Yes. They are such a bad take on the X-Men that yes. it comes around to good again. Full circle to good again. Yes. Angry Eagle, Simeon, Spanner, and Torque. Led by Jubilee, who has named them the X-People. 1998, we can't say man anymore. It's the X-People. I just don't know whether or not like the X-Heroes or like Mutant Force. Like X-People is like the dumbest name they could have come up with. In a lot of ways, on a lot of levels, it's almost tongue-in-cheek like the girl power shirt in a way that's yeah. almost almost rude and jubilee has moved them to saddle ridge new jersey i'm from jersey i don't know why you do that maybe tax laws in westchester were becoming less than forgiving that sounds like i mean new that's York. the thing that like you know if, if she was like we had been living in siberia and i needed to move them closer to new york we went from westchester where for some reason we could no longer be to new jersey <laughs> Well, and now let's talk about the star shitbag of the second issue, this story. Enthralla is the worst ever Mesmero mastermind with the most forgettable garbage pail design. She is not even the kind of thing that would get drawn into the background of a Morlock pinup in most X-Men comics. But because these X-Men are just so, gosh, you know. So if Hoxpox is a TI-89, these X-Men are an abacus. And Enthralla is the counting on your toes to get to 20 that, God, she's so sad that she comes up again in this in this universe is that any of these characters, this is the worst version of the X-Men ever. And I'm here for them. It's also hilarious that they've got new versions of X-Men uniforms that are a new blue and yellow. But Jubilee just stepped out of the 616 continuity in her Generation X outfit and suddenly became an adult that is now running this new school. I get that part of this universe involved Larry Hama, who I'm a huge fan of for his very long, brilliant Wolverine run, and his use of Jubilee made her very cool with adults. Like, for the most part, adults are like, you can keep your fucking kid characters away from me, but Jubilee is a cool kid, and I think that was part of the thinking, but the biggest problem is this is our first time talking about the X-Men in this universe and nothing happens. No. There is no story. It's just a training montage and... And there's no promise of anything else. With every other version of a property from main Marvel continuity, it's like Fantastic Five are still the first family. There's something huge there. Dark Devil, big promise of future things to come. With the X-Men, it's like, don't worry. We didn't forget they exist, but we don't want to do anything with them. Really? I think they're holding them for another series that 
they will appear a bit more regularly in later on. But this is, you know, I think J2 is meant to be the X title. And yes. it becomes much clearer later on that J2 is meant to be the X title. But because Juggernaut is so much more than just an X-Men villain, there's other stuff they want to do. They want to see him fight Thor. They want to see him fight Hulk. They want to see, you know, this sort of coming of age in there as well. And because of that, this X-Men story just didn't have time to thrive. Yep. And let's go from a story that just didn't have time to thrive to, I guess, half of a story that worked really well for me. Uh, the J2 Hulk story. I don't know that I get it. The way it's done here, the Avengers half is really strong. And I like a lot of the emotional beats where we see Zane keep being afraid. But my big problem with this issue is the dialogue is just never synced up to the art in a way that I normally would never notice. I feel like Hulk constantly looks like an animal, but constantly sounds very eloquent. And J2 constantly looks like he's gearing up for more fight. And his dialogue always sounds kind of weak. It feels very much like this got re-scripted later on in regard to the A next issue. And yet doesn't really land. And they even try to be like, oh, you don't need to read that issue. You're fine. No, you do. You absolutely do. Because there's not enough here to justify why he's fighting Hulk. And then within the issue, there's just not enough here to justify why this issue exists. I love the idea of interiority and, you know, these two powerhouses having a conversation of some kind, but they're not really having a conversation. They're repeating the same beats over and over again. And the most interesting beat we got was in the Avengers issue, which is, oh shit, this is still actually a kid. This is still actually a 14 or 15 year old who has been charged with doing life-saving, universe-saving work, and he saw something fucked up and got scared. Amazing idea. Really good thing to see in that issue, but it's not something that can then go fold into a whole other issue without incredible writing behind it, without a ton of intention, and without you know a, a desire to bring that into future issues. And none of that is here. It's just like, hey, that one fight that you saw, there's more. And then the problem is the two backup stories, Self-Defense, the Zane Marco way and Ghosts of Halloween present, both of them are just when Zane gets big, he turns into a roid monster. Yeah. Like both of them are just now that he's strong, he beats people up. But he's it still a good kid. But he doesn't think. No. And one of my notes is that number one, in the self-defense, the Zane Marco way, there is definitely some fuck your bully's mom to this. Yes. That he's like, oh, you can take me down. He, he, he. Never mind. It's kind of gross. Yeah. And Ghosts of Halloween present that it's just about him feeling sad in front of women this is three years from new x-men yeah is this really what we're doing right now i thought both of these were not quite the f that dragon king was but i thought both of those were wastes of my time definitely waste of your time and also like defalco's writing all of this so he's got j2 in avengers being a much more nuanced character around girls and having them respond to that and be like oh you're a great guy that just doesn't make sense like none of these characters develop in a way where you're like a writer is in charge of showing you the various facets of this person and how he grows it's just throwing stuff 
at a wall. And then we get to a story that I think actually kind of works. I thought the Doc Magus nemesis story where he was chasing his dad was one of those things like the Venom story where you needed to do it. Yeah. He could even find his dad early in the series. If the series had run 100 issues, I would have been found if he found his dad at issue 20. Yeah. But you needed the at least it didn't work once as a draw. It's just that it doesn't offer anything new for that story. It's kind of a generic magical thing. It has sort of a uh, kind of a psychic battle kind of feel to it. But in that regard, it's not really J2's story. It's kind of Dr. Nemesis. I mean, Dr. Magus's story because Dr. Nemesis is someone different. This is Dr. Magus versus Nemesis. And I wish they had just spelled Nemesis right. Yeah. And you know, the original issue of J2 starts off with this thing where he says that he has nightmares of being chased by the juggernaut. Those nightmares sort of come back into play here. (sighs) Again, it feels like the writer has some idea in his head about this internal conflict and this bearing of the burdens of his father's name that Zane carries. But there's no clear idea written. So it just literally is like, I had this nightmare and it actually turns out that the nightmare is real and we're going to go fight the night. Because, you know, when we talk about, I guess every story is the same thing over and over again. It's not. When you look at like Immortal X-Men and compare that to say Marauders and compare that to say, you know, the previous run of Sword. These are very different books. Just because it's the X-Men doesn't mean it needs to be the same thing every single month, every single title. And yet I do feel like we do wind up, it's the same story every single month, every single title for these books. Yeah. And I was really frustrated by how perhaps kind of like shrug the end of Father Hunt was. Because I thought Father Hunt was a semi-decent story, like I said, but it does kind of end like, oh, wow, I guess we'll just have to try this again later. Goodbye. And that's a very 70s ending, but I specifically have an enormous problem with the sad and sorry saga of Slippery Slippery, Slippery Sam, the sliding man. I can't even say it. And my problem with it is there's a joke in this issue that is not okay one way or another. When it cuts to the very last page and Sam is in a full body cast, I have to assume that that dialogue that he got injured in prison is a rescript because J2 putting this guy in a full body cast would have been too far. But suddenly him slipping in prison is bizarre. The other thing is he slips on a bar of soap in the shower, which is kind of prison for was sexually and physically attacked in the shower. So this is either they realized that they were about to have a 16 year old boy shatter a man's body and replaced it with homophobia at the expense of people being physically violated in prisons or they just weren't putting that much effort into their art. Yeah, again, an editor. And the problem here is the editor's the writer. Right, exactly. And that's not... It's just not a thing where you should be doing both jobs. I'm not saying that Tom DeFalco can't do both jobs separately very well, especially when you're saying, let me reboot the entire universe and give you a new one with great new characters that people won't want to follow the same way they followed this original one for decades. You cannot do both jobs. And the problem becomes that you lose the foresight. And I think issue four highlights that lack of foresight. You know, Father Hunt might 
might have even been like a oh and when we get to it that's the story we'll write kind of story mm-hmm. it's issues like wild thing issue five with the aftermath story that i think maybe show that there was some thought put into this universe it's of note that wild thing number zero was released earlier than the rest of the wild thing series so you know she was definitely thought out early on i think it's interesting that she's the daughter of wolverine and electra and that in this universe juggernaut and wolverine became something of unlikely best friends on the x-men together which is revealed later on so i might cut that we'll see what i do and i i don't know i like this story i like her i like how fucking big and thick wolverine is drawn i like that logan pretty much tells kane that this fight is over and kane says you know what we're good oh i called him kane i meant i meant zane that's uh what happens when they look the same and their names rhyme so i don't know for me everything but the fact that her name is rena really works i think rena is a weird name but for this character at least because then she's wolverina right that's that's that is is incredibly weird it does feel like they were like i want to name her after you wolverina and then her code name will be wild (laughs) it just there's no logic this does work for me this gives us the best example of how you might acknowledge that continuity is a thing and that it can work for you while giving us something that is a little more serialized and a little more monster of the week. Rena represents both of those things in a way that Wolverine is so iconic that it's not that hard to get the references and to lay it all down very quickly and move through the issue. But it is a pretty contained story. It's something that you can come back to later, but that is not tied to a lot of other stuff that you have to read. Even in the same way that like this A next fight with the Defenders and then the J2 version of it with the Hulk. It's just a lot of moving parts across multiple issues. This is just one little contained story, but it is relevant to a larger universe. I guess that's my point. And in terms of the larger universe, ultimately, J2 winds up being in four of six issues of Wild Thing, and Wild Thing winds up being in like six of 12 issues of J2. So this really could have just been an X-Men anthology, mm-hmm. and they really could have shared it 50-50 from the beginning, and and not had so many stupid, ridiculous filler juggernaut stories. And I like that she's got psychic claws because then it's a little bit more like Electra, and Electra just isn't a, a body here, which is all she is. She has no dialogue. She serves no purpose. She might as well be nobody. It's like she's lobotomized and they're hiding her from the hand. It is so weird how Electra has nothing to say. And Especially because Wolverine suits up. Yeah. It feels so uneven. I like that this has elements of Wolverine versus the Hulk in Rena versus Juggernaut. That's kind of exciting. I think that she just kind of comes in killing. Like, she's just kind of such a fucking hothead. That isn't my favorite, but I do like that Jubilee stuck up for J2 to Wolverine. That's like... Jubilee's the coolest. She knows what it's like to be a kid trying to make it. And that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, there's great connective tissue here. Again, like Jubilee knows Wolverine, knows his daughter, now knows J2. These people are all somewhat connected. There's a funny family thing here, which again is such a classic X-Men thing that really could have been an asset to this story and to this universe. Because the first thing I notice is Aftermath is completely disconnected from Wild Thing. Yeah. Like if Wolverine or Rena had been in Aftermath, it would have felt a little bit stronger, but mostly it feels like, I don't know, it feels like we're meant to take a kind of hideous capitalist meaning from it. If it weren't for J2 
destroying everything, we couldn't get overtime and feed our families is like the weirdest note to include in this. I don't want to hear about why capitalism works in the middle of a story where you're telling me that this kid's hot-headedness nearly killed people. I also thought that they only put his mother in a wheelchair. I know that when you're leaving a hospital, you have to leave in the wheelchair. But I think that this scene was shown to create a false sense of mortality for our characters that, I, I don't know, it just didn't hit me. Yeah, you're absolutely right about all of it. However, if my computer autocorrected Magneta to Magenta one more fucking time when we talk about issue number six, there's when Magneta strikes the letter and little red the wretched hood, one of the fucking fairy tale stories that they start just slamming in here for no reason. They're feeling loose and slamming shit or whatever. <laughs> so I hate the lovesick montage because this lovesick opening montage, you're right. I don't think this fits with Anext. It references things in Anext. It brings up Anext storylines. It has Anext characters, but this doesn't feel like the same fucking book. Yep. So I find myself a little frustrated. However, I do think the, oh God, they're throwing a car at us is like the funniest thing. Yeah. I mean, it none of it makes any sense. The fact that Magneta is just literally wearing Magneto's costume is by far the like actual dumbest part for me. Like, I, I don't know. Magneta bothers me maybe a little bit, but she's fine. I love the screens that show all of the other heroes. That's a technique that we used in Kid Riot a couple of times to try and pack in as many people as we could. Oh, look, there's a screen with a hero in the background. It counts as an appearance. Shut the fuck up. And, you know, here you've got a next the X people, Fantastic Five, Dark Devil. Good for him. We have Doc Magus, who I keep thinking is fucking Nemesis from Alpha Flight. And then we have Spider Girl and Spider Girl, girl, your thighs are looking phenomenal there. And yeah. You got a little bit of Rob Liefeld foot, though. So I mean, it's a fully formed foot. It's OK. It's just a little pointy. Now, the battle of J2 versus Magneta is so random for me. Like, I like her. And I just probably would have saved her for a wild thing reveal. Like, yeah. there's other people I would have done here. Maybe an adult siren. Something like that. Or, you know, Lorna. The idea that she is not Magneto's child or in- she's just another person with the same powers that took his look. That actually, sure. Because then it gives us this idea that, like, some people are connected and some people are the children of people you know and some people aren't they just look like them that's plausible i can get into all of that but you have to do something with this idea that she's not in any way related to magneto like that needs to come up be a stark thing and you know have her be like i'm a completely separate entity it just i left it being like so is she related to magneto I guess I'm a little confused. I agree. It felt like she's got that like really horrible marble bust of him. Yeah. And it just she's got his hair. She's got his powers. His costume. His costume. Everything. So I was like, she, surely this is another child we don't know about. From what I can tell, it is not. She's just somebody who looks a lot like him, has the same powers and wanted to dress like him and do what he does, which is fine. But that's a big deal. In a universe like this, where there's so many people that are the next generation, the idea that you are not Magneto's daughter, you just could be should be a story that is very different from the previous one of like Wolverine and Elektra's daughter just showed up. These should be totally different stories. I agree. It feels so fill in the blank. Yeah. It feels very copy and paste her in. Yeah. And I think this is where I really do start to notice that J2 doesn't have a focus. Mm -hmm. You know, we get that the letter, which probably should have been in the previous story, but I guess they wanted Rena to play out over more issues. So the Magneta story just kind of stops and 
the A next team are like, you suck for being hot-headed, and we move right on. It feels so confusing because they invest so much time in setting up J2, having romantic interest, and having having this interiority, but then any chance they have to get into it, they blow past it and instead focus on a character like Magneta, and I'm here for giving Wild Thing more page time, but then call this the MC2X title. Don't right. call this J2. Right. Because Little Red, the wretched hood, just shouldn't have been fucking printed. That's four pages that should have gone to something else. Yep. I don't care what. Anything else. Pinups. Show me J2 practicing wrestling moves. Anything. But this is genuinely, you know, if you don't have issues 7 through 12 and back issue, you can't read them. They are not on Unlimited, they are not for sale, and they are not in trade. So if you don't have these, you know, these next six issues, your last J2 story in this series is Little Red the Wretched Hood. Which is nothing. It is it nothing. It is a weird fantasy. I think they thought maybe they were doing like a kiddie's fairy tale thing. Like people get a kick out of this. We do this sometimes. It's not that. It is just a bad, weird story that has nothing to do with anything that has a fairy tale-esque veneer. And I think that's probably the best point for us to move over to a next, which for my money had way too many fucking characters. The entire run, yep. all the way through, I yep. could not keep track. It opens with Jubilee, Speedball, Jolt, Thunderstrike, Mainframe, Stinger, and J2. And by the end, we lose half of them. And then every other issue, we get twice as many more. This was such a by the numbers Avengers story, but then it also had J2 in the form of Thunderstrike all over again, the exact same thing. Tyrus is just an Ulick stand-in. J2 and Mainframe have the exact same pose, back-to-back pages, 10 and 11. This was the thinnest opening of the three. Yes. Thinnest opening of the three. Absolutely bewildering because we get Jubilee, Speedball, and Volts. Jubilee and Speedball are recognizable as the characters they are in current continuity, which for this book should be at least a decade ago but they are who they are and that's fine but then they don't ever come back on the team jubilee shows up again in the book but she's never on the team and you really get the impression that she will be she's on the cover and she shows up and answers this call and every single issue is the same thing of like this person that was an avenger there's a version of them that is the child or the descendant or neither of those things but somehow the inheritor of the identity of somebody that you know who was on the Avengers. Here's the story of how they got there. Here's the story of them meeting these people for the first time. Is this a cohesive team? Yes, but also no. And you made a great point that I hadn't even thought about. A next forms because of Loki, just like the Avengers formed because of Loki. Yeah. In the original Avengers number one. Yeah. It's all Avengers stories have to start with Loki showing up and fucking things up and an Avengers team form is apparently my takeaway. And you know, Thunderstrike not transforming into Thunderstrike was never going to happen. There was no chance Kevin was not going to accept his father's power i don't even have a problem with jarvis being like oh well we saved it for you this whole time kind of sort of not really but sort of maybe a little bit it's you know there's things about the isn't that convenient that bother me but it really is that j2 inherits his father's power spider girl inherits her father's power thunderstrike inherits his father's power in the next issue john foster gains not quite bill foster's powers but still yet becomes an avenger and kind of in becoming earth century like it really is like you 
said, every issue, it's they form a team, the team comes into some problem, someone new from the past comes back, maybe they're a child, maybe they're just legacy. But no matter what, it really does feel like these are stories that were almost tossed Avengers stories, and you could just slot in their parents for them. Yep. With a little bit of additional, like, we need the Avengers back, here's why. Oh, now here's a new Avenger that helps to answer that question. I also thought that perhaps the worst part of the first issue was when I try and time this out with Spider-Girl seeing Juggernaut, or I'm sorry, Peter seeing Juggernaut in Spider-Girl 1. So Juggy's already on the team. So this happens before Spider-Girl at some point. So Juggy is just like, oh, I should just go join the Avengers. How long has he been J2? How long has he been a hero that he's like, oh, I should just immediately join the team? In my own title, I'm talking about how being a hero is the hardest thing in my life and it's always ruining my life and it's making everything terrible. I'm going to join this other team while I'm trying to hide my identity from my mom and my friends. Because by issue three, he is deep in the Avengers because that's where we have the the story where he's fighting. So somewhere after one and before three months have passed. And it's just what it is. Now he is just an Avenger and it's super hardcore and it's what he does. It feels a little bit like they want us to accept that a next is like the Avengers and that they can pull together a team whenever they want and kind of disperse that team whenever they want. But they forgot to make us care about the team because issue one just kind of ends. It just fucking ends with J2 Stinger, Mainframe and Thunderstrike agreeing to be a team. And my problem with it was was you want me to believe that a next are the avengers right you want me to think that this is the world's coolest super team hey how did that issue end thor came in said the battle was over and everyone went home a next yeah. did nothing they showed up and left great job you stood around oh good it was just kind of a clunk and then the same thing happens in the second issue with suddenly the sentry it's just kind of almost like a classic claremont plane trip so much exposition everybody just sitting around talking everybody just just sharing who they are. There's people frozen in crystal by a monster. It just felt like I was trying to be told the 1970s story that I'd never read. And these aren't the 1970s characters. So I don't have the same level of investment. This isn't Colossus. It's J2 and I love him for who he is, but he's not Colossus and you don't get my benefit of 40 years of of storytelling. No, he's got to work for it and there's got to be a lot of conflict. And when new characters characters show up it has to be big destabilizing question mark this team should be rocky for a while because we've already seen decades of avengers be excellent and a lot of it came from a time where comics lack nuance they have enough now that if you're going to give us a new avengers there has to be a bunch of nuance behind it which is i think why i don't really care for issue two i didn't really care for issue number three either and the reason that i think those two issues lost me so much is because they just just felt like you were telling me Avengers stories. Mm-hmm. You weren't telling me Avengers next stories. I just thought you were kind of giving me more of the same Avengers and comparing these Avengers to the classic Defenders is not a move that makes me care more about these Avengers. It just kind of hinders it a little bit. I want to like Doc Magus, but Doctor Strange kind of putting him in his place over and over again doesn't do anything to make Doc Magus more interesting. There's some cool psychic stuff, but it just keeps devolving into a punch him up and the most interesting parts we already talked about in discussing J2. And ultimately, it brings in more continuity where you're like, now I want to know what happened like to to Namor, to Hulk. How did Hulk get to this point where he is looking so rough, but 
apparently at the peak of his sort of sentience in the Hulk form. There's just so many more compelling questions than what is this Avengers team going to do? Because they don't ever cohere. Which is why and I, I feel like I'm always flying through a next too fast, yeah, I mean, but there's not more to there's talk about. To there's nothing really to say. There are little hints of maybe this team can come together, but there's really no time to stop and focus on, you know, like it seems like Cassie is taking a big sister role for J2, but there's no like, hey, you seem upset. Let me take you out for a burger and let's talk about how weird it is that we're both the children of superheroes. Because what I mostly get is Cassie is the angriest person to ever be an Avenger. She is furious about everything. Her father has no personality other than going, yes, Cassie, please stop yelling at me. It's it's so crazy. So that when we're told that there's a possibility of a new team of Avengers coming in, American Dream, Blue Streak, Freebooter, and Crimson Curse in the fourth issue. Yeah, okay, sure. I'll take them. At least we got them in there quickly. It wasn't some weird mystery of, who's this? How'd they show up? We've got a Scarlet Witch analog. We've got a Captain America analog we've got a quicksilver analog and we've got a hawkeye analog they're right there it's totally clear who they are there are some questions about maybe what their backgrounds are or how they got to be the like analog of the characters they're representing but they just show up one day and are working and that fits the original avengers cap right. showed up in the fourth issue so american dream joining in the fourth issue is really interesting and the addition of the villain crew that joined later on so it's got a nice mirror it's also of note that american dream is the final character to get her own miniseries in the entire of MC2 and the final character to appear in a non-canon mini. She appears in a Captain America like Secret Wars-esque team-up core book. So she really does last. She is a big deal, but like Freebooter sucks. Like Freebooter just sucks. Yeah, Freebooter Freebooter sucks. Spoiler alert, there's a moment coming up at the end of the second volume where I feel like it brings his character back a little bit more, but mostly in this way that just says to me like, you could have been writing him well the whole time. The whole time. Yeah, nothing interesting about him. Again, Crimson Curse winds up having an interesting backstory that all it does, you find this out in one of the last issues, it just makes me wish that you'd set it in issue one and that had been something that we dealt with a little earlier. There's just, it's almost hard to find things to talk about. Yeah. I like the Wakandan characters. The Braxis and Cold Tiger are interesting, cool designs. Probably should have been on the team. Everybody could and should have been on the team, but also could not have and should not have because it's too many people and they're not well written enough to justify anybody me wanting anybody to be on this book if they're away from it at least they're safe and like I certainly don't need J2 on this book with Thunderstrike already on the book with Cassie already on the book he's somebody I could take right off and wouldn't even notice so I don't know I feel like the other problem is everything that A-Next did Spider-Girl and J2 did somewhere else and maybe did a little bit better in a way I liked more one of the things that got really old to me was I mean spoilers mainframe is obvious a robot right day one he's obviously a robot with his brains downloaded into him this isn't even interesting by this point in time because we've already got vision we've already got characters that are deathlock like this isn't new nope it's not new it's not interesting even like the origin isn't so good that it justifies this big like every issue there's a question of who is mainframe i swear i'm gonna tell you here's a weird thing that i did that would really you should know what i am because it's very obvious None of it bears out in a way that I'm like, that was worth waiting that 
is it eight issues seven issues yeah to to get there it's yeah it's very obvious and very unspecial and outside of the fact that they're working to create a team that could be believably as powerful as the avengers i don't know why some of the villains they're pitted against are the villains they're pitted against like there is no villain in so much of this and then all of a sudden there's not quite dr doom yeah and i don't super duper mind that it's Kristoff. I don't get I, the stinger thing. It's like that it's Kristoff is par for course with this book because everybody is somebody's child or somebody's descendant, including totally the right. villains. Sure, that's fine. But then there was no actual villain and there was no threat. And then there's this weird thing where apparently he and Cassie are in love. Sure, whatever, fine again. But where's the conflict? Where is the threat? Where is this team of superpowered individuals coming together and saying, if we do not use our powers and coordinate together something really bad will happen well and we get that something really bad just in the past (laughs) issue six is the hardest and easiest issue of the series argo is stupid argo has no personality he's just brashness he kind of attacks he kind of doesn't attack he flexes a lot he calls the women babes j2 is watching xena more proof he's gay and this book at this point really reads like it's for old men who still have childlike wonder Mm -hmm. and it's things like there's something called the merchandise and you have to fight through stuff to get to it. That doesn't make any sense at all. If there's something so dangerous that getting to it might kill you, no one should need to get to it. That shouldn't be a plan. That doesn't make sense. That's not clever. That's like coming up with an IQ test and having the top score being genius bordering on insanity. That doesn't make any sense and it doesn't make anybody seem cooler. It's just putting some hardcore edgy words at it. I think it's supposed to be like the trials of Hercules. It doesn't do it for him. No. And then when we get that Hercules survived an Avengers massacre and now he's like wide-eyed like a horse, I don't know it is this jubilee should have mentioned that there was an avengers massacre or jarvis or like records all over the place in the avengers mansion that they're in that has computers everywhere truly i none of this makes any sense none of it coheres in any kind of way there is no classic avengers story being told and there's no modern story well the modern story is being told but it's not good it doesn't have any of the trappings of like a modern avengers story that would make you be like yes i needed this Avengers and 616 was getting a little stale. I'm so glad we took this and rebooted and did something new. It doesn't give you any of that. It just exists and gives you little Tom DeFalco's little spins on updates to the characters and different people who could have been them, which is fine, but I don't see the point. But he does give us a lot of accidental homoeroticism, which I appreciate uh, because in issue five, we get J2 and Thunderstrike as Zane and Kevin. That's what's so weirdly intimate about it. They both take away the trappings of being giant beast men and are vulnerable with each other. Like, I often sit around naked. I don't like clothes. But if stuff gets heated, like the discussion gets heated, I kind of put on clothes real quick because, like, being naked during an intense moment feels very vulnerable. I have to imagine for size-changing super beings, being not size-changed is very vulnerable. Yeah, especially they're both kind of dorky zane's a dork and kevin's an art guy like they're not these sexy super flashy guys this is them at the people they could never be on the avengers and there is something very intimate about it and the fact that it's not one of those weird like oh you're not my friend like i don't do friends they very clearly like each other and it does play off as very homoerotic and you know it actually only gets a little bit more homoerotic as the story goes on which i'm pretty grateful for yeah i mean all said and done 
this first 18 issues, we had some negative comments, but I don't think it was the worst thing we've ever read. And I, I don't think it was by far even the worst AU I've delved into. No. I think that Spider-Girl and J2, by focusing on fewer characters, had more opportunities to develop narrative and persona. But I don't think I've wasted my full time yet. Like, I'm still reading more good than bad. If I had to give J2 a score, it's probably a C. And if I have to give A next a score, it's probably a C minus. Just because it says so little, even if it's perfunctorily fine. I think the one thing that I will say, especially about A next, that I maybe didn't bring across in our summaries of it is that that question of this is a historical document and the view of the quintessence of certain characters and certain components of characters and certain components of teams, that's all in there. You can really look at this and see what in 1998 was to be understood about, again, the first family, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, individual characters like Captain America, or in this case, American Dream. Within these stories, there is definitely somebody who is very high up at Marvel saying, this is what I want you to take away from our most beloved properties. And I think understanding that in 1998, as we move all the way through to 2022, there's something important to be carried away from that in terms of understanding these characters today. And I can't wait to keep investigating that with you. This has been a lesson in how long these are going to be. Yeah. But it's also been good because I feel like we really got into it. And I feel yep. like I understand my notes better as well. Yep. And until we dive back into the MC2, TK, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And as always, you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Don't forget to check us both out on our partner show, Exes for Podcast, where for over 300 episodes, we've been covering the current X books as they come out. And you guys can check out my original work over in the upcoming Young Men in Love anthology, which you can order from Diamond or your local LCS. And until we return to the world of MC2, guys, we'll see ya. Bye. Bye.